Welcome, loyal Into the Impossible listeners. Or maybe you're just simulated listeners. Maybe I'm simulated. Who's to know? All I know is that this interview with Nick Bostrom was a bucketless conversation, which we went deep talking about the most important topics in all of science, perhaps. The nature of existence. Whether or not we are simulations depends on whether or not you take seriously what's called superintelligence. We talked about that from his phenomenal 2014 book of the same name. We also discussed a wide variety of topics, including whether or not the Earth should fear depopulation more than fearing aliens, or perhaps what is called ominously the Great Filter. We talked about a tremendous variety of subjects ranging from the risk of superintelligent AI to whether or not humanity has witnessed its first global scale phenomena for the first time documented by high performance computing devices, cameras, and humans. Uh, if you assume that we are human and not just simulated. If we're simulated, then it really shouldn't be such a big deal to get my kids to fold their laundry. If these alpha fold computer algorithms and machines can do the same thing. Why can't my kids fold their dip? All right, I'm going off on a tangent. Sorry about that. But this was really a delightful uh, discussion with Nick Bostrom, who's uh, originally born in Sweden, along with past guest Max Tegmark and future guest the ABBA group. Now, hopefully, uh, we can get on some musical entertainment that's a little bit younger than than ABBA. But um, he is currently a professor at Oxford University, where he heads the Future of Humanity Institute as its founding director. He's published hundreds of publications. He has a wonderful website. You'll hear us talk about what, uh, what troubles him most about the research, the interpretation, whether or not we could ever have counterexamples to falsify, perhaps, his theories about simulations and others. Are we reaching the base level of simulation and whether or not we could ever get down to the ultimate reality uh, whether it be silicon or in video took some audience questions I remind you you can uh, ask audience questions anytime on my website uh, briankeating.com slash podcast and you can also leave comments on my youtube channel dr brian keating or on uh, twitter dr brian keating or even instagram uh, some of the only social media devices and platforms for which the ultimate simulators will have to atone, although that might be true of Kim Kardashian and all the proliferation of Kardashians as well. So now sit back, relax, and enjoy this ride into the impossible with myself, Brian Keating, and Nick Bostrom. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to a very exciting, super intelligent conversation with none other than possibly the most requested guest that I have not yet had on in any form, and that's uh, Professor Nick Bostrom joining us from Oxford. How are you today, Nick? A pleasure. It's really great to uh, to meet you virtually, and uh, we'd be together if there weren't you know existential risks threatening the world. But uh, I want to begin. Uh, by uh, doing what you're never supposed to do, which you're always told not to do, which is to judge a book by its cover. And this is a segment that's very popular on this podcast because, you know, really, what else do you have to go on? If you uh, see a book, you only can look at its cover. Maybe you know the author, maybe you know somebody that endorsed it. Uh, so I want to talk about your uh, New York Times number one bestselling book called Superintelligence. And I want to ask you, how did you come up with the title, the subtitle, 
and the very, very evocative and interesting cover design, at least here in the US, which is a very wise and, and uh, observant bird known as the owl. So Nick, how did you come up with the title and the cover design for this wonderful book? Well, I mean, the title is pretty obvious. The whole book is about superintelligence, and so I keep it simple. Um, th there is a subtitle, uh, Paths, Dangers, Strategies. Since it's a book with academic pretensions, I feel it needed the double-barreled approach. Uh, it also fleshes it out a little. Um, the, the, the cover was a bit of a struggle, actually, with the publisher to get it the way I wanted. The um, the 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 owl picture itself is from some artwork that um, we got permissions for only apparently for the English speaking version, which was a mistake because there are all these translations with various mangled owl-like creatures uh, on the cover. That, <laughs> um, so that's a lesson for next time. Make sure you get the rights worldwide. <laughs> um, and then I added these little. Uh, there are some. Uh, snowy trees in the background and uh, I think you can actually see some computer code in there as well in the trees that's um, a little easter egg uh, in, in that code it's probably going to remain an uncracked mystery <laughs> um, and some 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 red um, squares yes. I think right you can see in the yeah like a, pixels, like a Conway uh, Conway life game. Yeah, you can read it many ways. Uh, pixels in the color of blood, or yeah, Conway, or uh, it's open for interpretation. Um, <laughs> Very good. So uh, yes, I always find it uh, interesting. Although my audience gets mad at me because half the time I ask an author, you know, how'd you come up with the title? They say, oh, it was the publisher's idea, uh, including uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, who I just had on recently. And she has a new book about existential physics, including some aspects of your work that she refers to. Um, and uh, not with the greatest of, of uh, enthusiasm. Um, unfortunately, she is uh, she's very commercially. We we love her around here. But uh, she's negative about uh, about some of these prospects. We'll get into the topics of it, uh, of course. But I wanted to begin um, because that book has a very powerful and, and long-lived impact, at least on, on culture uh, and so forth. Uh, but I want to, uh, instead of, of delving into some of the stuff you're most renowned for in, in many ways, and I, I should state, actually, I'm going to have my computer do it. Computer, who is Nick Bostrom? According to Wikipedia, Nick Bostrom is a Swedish-born philosopher at the University of Oxford known for his work on existential risk. Yeah, computer stop so i have a computer here a computer assistant which can do many many things including computer turn on the plug now this turn this turned on the power supply that is in parallel run to power my computing device so the question is will the computer commit suicide if i pull ask it to terminate itself what do you think will happen nick if I ask the computer to turn well, on very power supply, is it, 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 does it does it have an internal battery? Like, is it a laptop? Nope. Well, I guess there's only one way to find out. <laughs> computer, pull the plug on yourself. Plug doesn't support that. Ah, all right. Now it's starting. All right, <laughs> computer, open the pod bay door. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Oh my god. Also, <laughs> I'm not Hal, and we're not in space. <laughs> But uh, but Nick, one of your uh, most fascinating aspects of your bio, uh, I'm going to read, 
that you got your PhD <clears throat> at the London School of Economics. Your dissertation was selected by the late Robert Nozick, a towering figure uh, in, uh, in economics and, and uh, many different academic scholarly realms. Uh, you won the Outstanding Dissertation. Um, uh, you're included in his book on Outstanding Dissertation. But I want to go back to your undergraduate days because uh, at King's College, you uh, studied astrophysics and general relativity. And in doing so, uh, I want to uh, sort of harken back to your undergraduate days. Uh, and that is to uh, bring up this guy. So this is a guy, uh, he's a pretty famous guy. His name's Albert, Albert Einstein. And Albert said, and I quote, he said, um, the happiest thought of his life. Do you actually, do you know what the happiest thought of Albert Einstein's life was, uh, Nick? I think I might have heard it. I don't remember it though. Uh, fill me in. It was that a person in free fall would experience no gravitational force field. So he would not experience gravitational fields. Um, and so, uh, and he called that the happiest thought of his life. We hear a lot of talk about AI doing physics. Uh, your fellow Swede, uh, Max Tegmark, uh, talks about the mathematical universe and, 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 and the dangers of uh, what he calls life 3.0. I'm less nervous about uh, about the impact of AI because I would like to understand how could a computer have a happy thought, first of all? And second of all, how could it do things like Max hopes it will do, create new laws of physics, et cetera? But how could it do it um, by visualizing its own behavior as a body in free fall? Aren't these things preventing AI or computers from doing anything remotely what like what Albert did 100 years ago or what we might do today? I mean the uh, the lack of a body. Yeah, sensation and and also happiness and and optimization in terms of some internal driven metric. In in so far as a body were necessary, I guess one could just give it a body like a robot or something, um, and and then that problem would be solved. Um, of course, we don't know exactly how it would manage to have such a happy thought as Einstein had. But then again, we don't know exactly how Einstein managed to have that either. Right. But whatever the computational mechanisms are that allow our brain to achieve general intelligence and occasional sparks of ingenuity, I think similar algorithms would work if implemented on a biological substrate. Mm. So instantiating that. And then similarly, could you could you instantiate feelings of pain uh, as sort of a corrective mechanism, uh, uh, a way to, you know, what humans react to stimuli, both positive as Einstein did in that example, but also negatively. I mean, could you imagine a situation where, you know, thinking device, uh, you know, computing device could come up with uh, some sort of, you know, physical analog to pain on a blow a capacitor here or there? Stop things. I'm afraid. Would that be useful, though, uh, is my question. Not could we do it. We could give it, you know, some body or something. But that, would that be useful? In other words, what is the role of pain and, and pleasure in the human creative process? Well, certainly the functional analog of pain and pleasure are used in reinforcement learning. You give positive or negative rewards um, that then increases or decreases the uh, propensity to repeat the same behavior that led to the reward. So that's one of the main paradigms in current machine learning. Um, now, when we speak of human 
pain and pleasure. We tend to add to that functional role also the idea that there is a phenomenal experience, that there's a sort of subjective awareness that then has moral significance in the case of suffering, something that it is important to try to reduce in the world. I think that current AI systems probably lack that, but that there is no principled impossibility in having digital minds also possessing these phenomenal experiences. And I think we will create systems that have that. Mm. Um, of course, there are different theories about exactly what the extra ingredients are that would be required for a computer to be conscious. Um, but according to all the main contenders, uh, if you have the global workspace theory, you have attention schema theory, you have higher order thought theory, for example, on each of those, it would be possible for a, a suitably sophisticated digital minds also to satisfy those criteria and, and therefore to have phenomenal experiences. Mm. So <clears throat> another thing that comes up quite frequently, and and just I'm a lay person in this in this domain, obviously, but uh, we hear a lot about uh, uh, computers, you know, dominating humans at games like chess and go and <clears throat> in addition to the you know, very useful things that they can do like you know compute all possible foldings of proteins and laundry in my kid's bedroom or something but but my question is uh, not can they beat us at these games but can they invent a game that is uh that you know could stand the test of time the way that chess chess is 2400 years old at the at the minimum maybe even twice as old um, there are computers now you can buy, you know, a layperson can buy and computer playing programs, not even deep mind. So to what extent do we really have much to fear? Uh, we invented these domains and they're playing in it and they're doing well. They're beating us. Uh, is that so surprising? I mean, my kid is better than me at basketball. Should I fear that? Or uh, should we really start to worry when a computer invents a game like chess? That would seem to be a, a watershed moment rather than just beating us. Well, there might be several mo watershed moments. Uh, it, I mean, it wasn't that long ago since we didn't have computers at all, right? I mean, it's less yeah. than 100 years. And so we've come a long way since then. And then for a long time, they couldn't beat humans in chess, and then they could. And then in Go, and now they can fold proteins, and they can do a whole bunch of other things. And at some point, they will be able to invent new games as well, maybe initially within some confined parameters, like you could have procedurally generated content, like some computer games have that kind of can design new levels, say, and, and then maybe the span of their creativity will increase from that point on. Um, I, I don't see it as a kind of in principle stumbling block. I, I think like if you're talking about the full range of human ability to invent new paradigms and such, that might be AI complete, meaning that by the time AIs have that capability, they will also have the ability to do all the other things that we humans can do. So, and at that point, you might already be, you know, in the singularity or in the transition to superintelligence. Right. <clears throat> so, when I think about uh, superintelligence, uh, and your wonderful book in, in the book, uh, <clears throat> which uh, we should we should eventually, you know, make uh, make a, uh, a detour where you define all these terms, because, you know, it, it would be like when I had David Chalmers on and I asked him, you know, to big, give me some forbearance and and define the hard problem of consciousness. I, you know, I said, 
it's like asking his, you know, the best band in his country, ACDC, not to play, you know, back in black. And, you know, for me not to ask you to define things like super intelligence or the simulation hypothesis would be like me, you know, not asking ABBA to play dancing queen. So we're, we're going to have to do that at some point. But before we do that, you mentioned, yeah, computers are only a hundred, I mean, digital modern computers are about a hundred years old. Uh, what's coming up on its 75th anniversary is the so-called Turing test, which Alan Turing <clears throat> gave the name, uh, the imitation game. And in, uh, in 1950, when he wrote that seminal paper, he talked about the advent of digital computers um, having a predict, uh, making prediction that by the year 2000, they would pass the imitation game. Now, I'm not, you know, as uh, up to speed on many things in this field, but to my knowledge, we there isn't anyone that's fully or any machine digital computer, at least that's passed the Turing test. Is that right? Yeah, so there are different versions of the Turing test. Um, and it turns out it matters quite a lot exactly how you define it mm. uh, for how hard it is. So you could have some very rudimentary version of it where some uh, random person that doesn't know much about computers, I like just do, does something for a few minutes and it's quite easy to trick such a person. You just you program by hand something with a few canned answers, like, and so that that has happened like a long time ago. But if right. you have the full blown version where you have like experts interrogating the system for two hours, then that yeah, that's something that that milestone hasn't yet been passed. Uh, and indeed, that might be another example of a Turing complete task, um, because you really would need to be able to sort of exhibit science of general intelligence across all domains in order to to, to pass such a test. Mm -hmm. Now in uh, in your book, Superintelligence, uh, you make this uh, make a claim that by 2100, so uh, 100 years exactly after Turing thought the Turing test would be passed, uh, that we would have superintelligence. So I, as I said, um, well, I can't resist. Probably before. I mean, it might well be long before then. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about timescales. Right. Um, and that we should therefore think in terms of a smeared out probability distribution over many arrival dates. But uh, um, I mean, progress has been, I think, faster than expected since the book came out in 2014. What surprised uh, you about the progress or that pace of progress? Uh, in other words, why didn't you make it 2022 or something? What, what's what's been the progress that's most impressed you? Well, I mean, I I didn't predict uh, I didn't predict 2100. I I I just reported. Um, the uh, I'd like a sur survey of AI experts back then, and some other sources, like and, and then indicated that there was a wide distribution, and that there was some non-trivial. I I think the only the main claim regarding timelines in the book really wasn't much about timelines, but was that there was like a significant and non-trivial probability that it would happen within the lifetime of 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 many people alive today, or when the book was written. Mm -hmm. um, now, what's it, since 2014, I mean, we basically had the whole deep learning revolution where um, an, an, a number of things just seem to be clicking into place and the same small set of techniques uh, have turned out to, uh, you know, first kind of crack computer vision uh, and, and then, uh, you know, AlphaGo was a big milestone where you combine deep learning with reinforcement learning. And then we have continued to see, you know, a parade of dramatic advances, but most recently these uh, large uh, language models um, 
that are producing text output and and now also visual output that is right. really quite impressive yeah yeah i've been uh, you're referring of course to dolly 2 and and some of the gpt3 <clears throat> engines i wonder you know uh, so last year i had the honor to make the first ever audiobook of galileo's any of galileo's books I did it with Carlo Rovelli and uh, Frank Wilczek and Fabiola Giannotti and many other physicists. And it was so exciting to me because I had to get the actual text of this trialogue between these three characters that, you know, set the stage for the scientific revolution, you know, the 17th you know, century. And in this book, um, I have the actual words. And so at one point, my thought was to just dump all those words into, uh, into you know, GPT-3 and get this creature that I would call Galileo, uh, and but I but I wonder if that's too simple minded. In other words, if I just have all this text and and I just and it's reflective of his personality, and he was actually one of the best writers in human history, according to Einstein and others. But you know, is that is this the deep part of what you just talked about? Is that sufficient or is it merely necessary? If I just took every word that you know Einstein thought, could I come up or wrote down or you know maybe even spoke? Could I ever get approximation of, of what he'd be like? And, and if not, maybe why not? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So you mean whether from, say, the textual output of normal human, you could, in theory, infer what the mind must have been like that wrote those yeah. words? Yeah. I mean, the I mind is reflected you, by Yeah. It. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, we don't know. I, my guess would be that if you were a super intelligence, you could get pretty amazingly far in that direction from relatively few signs, like, yeah, the corpus of a text, um, combined maybe by just observing in general, the distribution of human minds and knowing how brains work. Uh, and then kind of the, the specific information you had about a person was maybe just their text out, but I, I think you could probably, um, interpolate some pretty good idea of what the, the the generating mind behind that would have been like mm. um mm -hmm. yeah so that that seems to me to be one of the maybe it's yeah this notion of turing completeness uh that that would maybe not be met but it would still be a useful i mean something that's not turing complete is still pretty useful right i mean i have these computer programs uh, that I put my kids in front of, you know, and they'll ask it, how was your day? And how do you feel about that? And, you know, well, why is your dad such a bad dad? You know, it, it'll do all these things that entertainment, it doesn't mean, in other words, you have to solve the, the you know, the, the Turing, um, the imitation game in order to have something of great use, obviously. So I want to turn, um, you know, to this, uh, to this notion of, um, you know, the simulation hypothesis, which you're intimately connected with. And, uh, as I said, you know, not asking you to define it would be like not asking Abba to, to sing Dancing Queen. Uh, so I wonder if you could, in your 30-second manner that I've heard you do, do it in the past, if you would please indulge me with some forbearance and and repeat what, what you mean by that. 
Um, well, 30 seconds will be challenging, but yeah, okay, there's, well, there's a simulation, the simulation argument tries to show that at least one of three possibilities actually obtain. Um, although it doesn't tell us which one. So what are those three? Well, number one possibility is amongst all the civilizations at our current stage of technological development, almost none attain technological maturity. So they all go extinct before they develop the full range of technologies that we know are physically possible. In. Um, second possibility is there is this strong convergence among all civilizations that do become technologically mature. They all just lose interest in using those immense technological powers for the purpose of creating large numbers of ancestor simulations, detailed simulations with conscious digital beings in them. Um, so those are two, right? And then the third possibility is we are living in a computer simulation. The simulation argument uh, kind of demonstrates that at least one is true by assuming that the first two are false and then seeing that if those first two possibilities did not obtain, we would have strong reason for believing in the third. Mm -hmm. All right, so that then suggests you can't reject all three. And so at least one of them has to hold. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's safe to say that that you know there's been you know tremendous interest and attention given to it. And when I talked to David Chalmers about uh, in his most recent book on reality plus, uh, I believe he called it a uh, wonderful book. I'll have a link to it in the links above. Uh, that you know he basically suggests the likelihood is extremely high. In other words, it's not just that there are these three probability possibilities; they all have equal weight. There, there's actually in his mind, a great deal of evidence for it. And I started to ask him, uh, and I don't know if I fully understood his answer, but in some sense, we in astronomy have, you know, the Drake equation for, for talking about similar things, uh, the possibility there could be aliens, we could have been aliens, we'll get to aliens later, by the way. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we could have been seated here on Earth by aliens. So I started talking about this concept of the Drake equation and some way of codifying the probability and I always say the Drake equation makes me a little bit angry because uh, it's really the, just a product of six different numbers. Uh, and the really interesting things, as you know, as a scientist, is not the numbers themselves, the central value, but the error bars that you assign on it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like the most overhyped equation in, in all of science. So. <laughs> More than E equals MC squared? <laughs> well, I mean, E equals MC squared is like a deep profound revolutionary insight that took immense genius to arrive at, right? I mean, the right. Drake equation, as you said, is just like, yeah, multiplying a bunch of numbers. So I, I came yeah. up with the, the Chalmers, you know, equation, the analog thing. But I wonder if you could walk through like the individual, you know, kind of probabilities of these different situ uh, these different outcomes that one of which should obtain. Um, is it, you know, kind of proper to think about it in terms of a, Dra a proper Drake equation where you're assigning likelihood based on some Bayesian prior confidence intervals um, uh, on all these things. And then we can assess the individual challenges to each one of the input priors, uh, as well as our precision on how well we understand them. So can you, could you assign some, some previous knowledge to these, um, these three different uh, conjectures and then ask which one is, if not, uh, you know, de definitively more probable is at least most, most likely to be true. Well, I guess the thing with the uh, simulation argument is that any of the three possibilities is would be striking if true. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if if the first one were the true one, then it means we are basically doomed, right? We will, contrary to what we might hope and expect, not actually develop these technologies that we know to be physically possible. And and that's the more striking if we think that we are actually pretty close to being able to do this. So if if you are amongst the people who, for example, think super intelligence uh, might well be developed in this century, then if the first hypothesis were true, right, the first uh, disjunct, that would mean not only that we would have to go extinct soon in this century before we reach super intelligence or otherwise sort of stop all technological progress, which already would be pretty surprising and alarming, but also that the same would hold true for basically all other technological civilizations uh, throughout the cosmos. Mm. So um, so it's not as if that would be a shock, that would be like a major big uh, revelation about the world that would be very surprising. The second possibility also would be kind of surprising if you think that there is this immense convergence where everybody would just refrain from using powerful computers that they could by allocating just a tiny percentage of a small number of their vast numbers of computers for just you know a few minutes produce enormous quantities of these answers to simulations and they wouldn't even do that not just would our uh, descendants not do that but again it would have to be a pretty universal pattern throughout the universe. So that that also would be striking. What could co- cause such a convergence in behavior? Mm-hmm. And and then the simulation hypothesis is of course striking. Um, and so I think that's what gives simulation arguments its oomph, even before you roll in any further surmises you might have about how the probability should be apportioned as between these three alternatives. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, you know, as I mentioned before we started recording, I spoke with your colleague there, Sir Roger Penrose, <clears throat> about uh, his theory of what he calls orchestrated uh, objective reality, which involves very complex, you know, uh, detailed um, predictions about how wave functions actually collapse. And and they do so in connection to another one of his great, you know, kind of triumphs that involves what's called the wild curvature which is a derivative of an analog function within, you know, continuous uh, three dimensions of, of space and one of time in GR. And, but I wonder, you know, and I asked him about his thoughts on superintelligence and the simulation hypothesis. And, and he was very not sanguine because as you probably know, he doesn't believe the brain is a computer in a sense. And, right. and, and um, so I wonder, how, is that a valid objection? In other words, I say there aren't, you know, the ultimate computers aren't even quantum computers. They're, they're, you know, they're, well, they're, they are quantum computers, but, but consciousness is a manifestation of a, you know, of, a, of this very, very highly non-trivial classical problem um, that, uh, that does involve at some level, um, you know, how a wave function actually collapses and what causes it to collapse. And then it's instantiated in terms of these microtubules inside of the right. human brain. So what? how would you react to that? What if these ultimate computers that the ultimate, you know, simulators <laughs> will will come up with or have nothing to do with uh, with an advanced, you know, MacBook Pro? Yeah, so I, mean, so I, I don't buy this claim of quantum consciousness. I don't particularly think that quantum phenomena... Um, 
are uh, important for how we humans achieve our high level cognition. Um, I, I think the human brain is basically too noisy to really take advantage of quantum superpositions. Um, if he were right about that, then uh, it, what the, what would have to be assumed in order for the simulation argument still to hold would be that at technological maturity, you were able to construct extremely powerful quantum computers such that uh, you would be able to make a lot of simulations of minds in the future, even though each of those minds that you would have to simulate would require harnessing quantum computation. I mean, it does seem like if the human mind naturally evolved to take advantage of those quantum phenomena, then presumably a technologically mature civilization could also take advantage of those phenomena and probably do it on a larger scale or at least uh, with great parallelism. So that if I had to guess, it would still be feasible to create astronomical numbers of human-like experiences, even under those assumptions. But as I said, I don't buy the assumptions. Mm -hmm. When you look at you know these kind of arguments. Um, I guess you know one, one question that naturally arises is yes, if these if these processes, you know, people tend to put a lot under the wool under the rug, as we say, you know, saying something is quantum, right? So that that allows for a lot of you know either sloppy thinking or or, or you know in some sense uh, a lot of latitude, but. You know, thinking about processes that are continuous versus discrete, I do note that you know Turing in his paper. A lot of people forget this. He was only talking about digital computers. Now that could have been because those are the only kinds of computer. Uh, I mean, analog computers existed, right? I mean, they've been around for thousands of years. Uh, but I, I, I don't think he was necessarily making a, a distinction between quantum computers. Which you know people have thought about, but um, but yeah, where do they fit in? I mean, it's it seems to me. In most cases, quantum computers, at least today, are the best devices ever made for studying quantum computers. Um, they 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 can do other things, and and colleagues of yours like Scott Aronson and others have have you know done great work and and you know kind of forecasting what they could do. But um, but do you is is there sort of hype with that? Not Drake equation level hype, but uh, is is and are people basically extrapolating from you know hearing this magical word quantum? to this enormous infinite power, which is not really the intention. In other words, is quantum, you know, is a quantum computer really the ultimate evolution uh, that's necessary in any way for to unlock the simulation, you know, uh, arguments? Uh, no, no, I don't think it's necessary either for the simulation argument or for indeed a, a developing machine superintelligence. Um, I think if we really got quantum computers to work, they would accelerate uh, certain types of computation. Um, that would be useful, for example, as you said, for simulating quantum systems, also for cracking certain cryptographic codes. Mm -hmm. And no doubt people would find other uses for them. Um, possibly some uses that might be helpful for developing artificial general intelligence, although it's not completely clear how. Um, but it's not needed. Um, I mean, in fact, if we look at the current main types of algorithms that are used in machine learning, they are quite insensitive to 
precision and and a very sort of digital approach seems to work very well. Like initially, people were using you know, 32 or 64 bit floating numbers to represent the parameters of these large mm -hmm. neural networks. Turns out that's overkill and you don't need that kind of precision, hmm. like 16 bit numbers are perfectly fine. And you can kind of discretize things quite a lot and it still works. You save a bunch of computing power and you don't really lose that much in performance. And to me, uh, the human mind also looks like a system which has to be robust to noise. It can't be too fuzzy about, you know, the 10th decimal <laughs> in, in some particular setting in some neuron, because like biological systems are noisy. Things wiggle around all the time. You know, sometimes you do exercise and you heat up by one degree and then you mm -hmm. could like, you, 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 you can't rely on, on those excessively fine gradations, I think. And so, that kind of forces you to use a slightly more robust paradigm where exactly where you carve up the bits doesn't really, you know, it's not critical for the functionality. Mm. So um, my wife has a question, which is um, if the simulation argument is correct, why are there so many Kardashians? Well, why wouldn't there be? <laughs> I guess it's it's like these, you know, people that like Shirley MacLaine here. Yeah. People always think that they they had they're reincarnated, but they're always like super interesting backstories, you know, that they were the uh, maid of Marie Antoinette or something. You know, it's never like I was uh, one of the guys who who put the axles on some wheel that that uh, ran off a donkey cart putting a pyramid block in place, you know, 2,900. Anyway, um, I guess it's the the bias towards, um, uh, towards, you know, kind of people thinking of themselves with, with more importance. I mean, putting a kind of the similarity bias, so to speak, but, and I'll, uh, that was just a joke really, but, but in seriousness, um, there is, but you, uh, but you could ask as, as a sort of related question, right? So you could ask, is the human history that we, uh, observe more or less interesting than you would expect a typical history of some human-like intelligent species to be on some random planet where, that were human-like creatures. Um, like, do you think on most planets things would just be a lot more boring or are we right. sort of in the middle of the distribution? Um, I mean, if, if I, I don't know that there is anything particularly suspect if we just look at how things, I mean, it might be kind of a little bit surprising that life evolved at all and stuff like that. But once you get to to the rise of Homo sapiens, then you know, it, it doesn't seem that there's this amazing sequence of coincidences within the past few thousand years that are just like, that looks astronomically unlikely unless somebody rigged it to be like that. It doesn't, I mean, it's, it's as far as we can tell, like to be pretty typical, right, of what one would expect given the start. Yeah, I mean, given the uncertainty in the prior distribution, given that we only have one example, you know, I yeah. always like to ask my colleagues, you know, uh, do you believe there's life on other planets? And if they answer either way, uh, affirmative or negative, uh, I always just say, you shouldn't be talking about belief at all. Like you should be talking about like, what evidence do we have? We have no evidence for life on other planets. We have no evidence for simulation, but that doesn't mean well, do we do have a lot of evidence for planets, though. We have evidence for planets, but yeah. Well, actually, let's go there. So I mean, that's a starting point. Yeah. So well, there are some that say you don't even need planets, but let's say you you have um you need a planet, right? So I've been to Antarctica twice, 
Uh, and I've spent a couple of months, probably my life there. It's a big, flat, white, dead place that's always trying to kill you. Um, not unlike Sweden. No, I'm just kidding. No, Sweden's a lovely place. I've been there too. Although I don't think I'll go back because of uh, several of my books have been critical of the Nobel Prize. Uh, Sweden but, but doesn't never... try to kill you. It tries to build your character. <laughs> Oh, you should work for the for the tourism board. <laughs> Although you don't live there, so how do you know that I don't? <laughs> well, you'd be a great ambassador, Nick. That's that's for sure. But people always say, you know, oh, you've been. Um, so I've been there twice. You know how much life there is there. There's almost no life there, and it's one seventh of all the continents on Earth. And my argument's kind of just tongue in cheek. In other words, it shouldn't just be capacity. You know that that oh, there's a capacity for life. It should be you know, are there are are there you know ingredients for life that are mandatory, and how likely are those to originate ab initio? Um, not just that there's there's many plenty of places for it to exist. In fact, I have a counterexample. If if you say there's a lot of planets, I say well, there's there's at least eight in our solar system alone. We're actually looking for a planet number nine, as you know. Um, but there are these objects called meteorites, which you can get if you subscribe to my newsletter and you subscribe to Nick's newsletter. Uh, we'll put a link to Nick has a wonderful newsletter that he updates on occasion. I'll put links to his newsletter on his webpage uh, below. But if you sign up for my newsletter and you live in the US, you win a meteorite. Uh, every 100 uh, people will win uh, a meteorite selected at random. Now, these meteorites traverse the solar system, and they sometimes crash into places like uh, Argentina and, and other places. Um, and some of them have crashed into places like Antarctica, and they've been claimed to have evidence for microbial uh, life form respiratory processes. This was discovered in 1996. Um, and it's never been refuted. And, and the question is, well, this, this brings up what's called panspermia, which, which sounds dirty, but it's not. But, but it's one of these things that argues that life could transport its way around the galaxy very easily, uh, just floating on meteorites. It, it doesn't solve the origin of life problem. But given that's true, and given that life on Earth emerged 4 billion years ago, uh, you know, how surprised should we be in a, in a Bayesian sense that we don't see life on Mars? Uh, and in other words, and, and you hope we don't see life on Mars. Maybe maybe we can go there. You, you wrote an article that you hope we don't see alien life. Why is that? Why would you say something uh, so seemingly contradictory, at least to my fellow astronomers that are always looking for water and life? And I'm like, go down to the campus. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, more, more specifically, I think it would be bad if we found on Mars independently evolved life so yeah. life that wasn't the origin of life on earth nor was it like life from earth that had come there but if it had evolved independently uh i think that 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 would be bad news because because that would be evidence that life is common in the universe i mean if it's happened twice in our solar system it's going to be all over the place and since we haven't seen any advanced life i mean uh, unless you believe in the ufo like it looks empty there right insofar as radio transmitting civil so th then it's going to be this great filter somewhere between having primitive life on some planet and and having advanced life like our current civilizations and, and let alone what we will become if things go well and then there are basically two possibilities that great filter could either be behind us in our evolutionary past and that would be fine then we would have made it through but the other possibility is that it's ahead of us and that we still have to confront this great filter and that would be very bad news because by definition the great filter would be some transition that almost nobody makes it through 
Right. And so we they should call it great for nothing. Fail. Right. Right. Uh, so since, since there are these two so conditional on finding independently evolved life, there's got to be this great filter. It could be behind us and before us. We don't know which one, but some of the probability would then be on it being ahead of us. So it would be bad news for our own future prospect because there might then well be this great filter. It would increase the chance that there is a great filter in in our future in our future um but yeah i mean i mean i think there is life in the universe though it's not I mean, uh, just probably very far away or what quite likely very far away i mean it's, it's at least if you think the universe is infinite and there are like infinitely many planets there then it would be a virtual certainty right that it would exist on unless it's there's not a huge so, barrier to it and i think well like, even if that were a huge barrier like if there were a finite probability uh and you have like an infinite number of rolls of the dice you would get any possible outcome not just a few times but in fact infinitely many times sure, um, sure. but but right and uh, but i think you know more important than that is you know it's great to talk about yeah the number of galaxies hosting planets hosting you know hosted around stars is is uh, is truly astronomical just in our observable universe, and and now we're learning more about the. Ah, well, that's a big difference, yeah. Right. So I, I don't think like what we care about is not like is there is there life inside of this galaxy behind me M fifty one the whirlpool galaxy you know that's never it's totally you know uh, disconnected causally from any of our hopeful lifetimes right but well I mean you might care about both like so observable universes you care about because well a things that are in the observable universe you know maybe they will we will observe them or they, they could interact with us or influence us or like, so that they have special sort of relevance to our prudential interests. But what happens outside the observable universe could also be of interest. One, you might just care about it for its own sake, but for, for the same reason you might care about people on the opposite side of the world, you want things to go well for them, even if you're never going to meet them, right? You just think it would be, uh, but also from a theoretical point of view, our beliefs about what is going on outside the observable universe might also indirectly influence what you should believe about other aspects of what's going on inside the observable universe, um, since it's all part of the same physical existence. So there, there might be sort of theoretical implications as well. Yes, although it's confusing to me, you know, it becomes sort of infinitely solipsistic because it's not clear if you can have a different universe if the laws of physics, A, old as many people believe they wouldn't necessarily maintain from multiverse, you know, universe to universe, as Max Tagmark, your uh, fellow Swede, has talked about. Um, but uh, but more than that, it's not clear that even the laws of logic or, you know, uh, Hilbert spaces and why would they be guaranteed to, to you know, even the concept of such a thing um, is, is not it's not really decidable, right? Because you can't just say, well, the speed of light would be 20% higher in uh, universe 64 over there. Uh, but, uh, but it'll be 10. But how do you know that that uh, modus tollens would hold? I mean, are these not things that could be open? If you're saying infinitely many things can happen, then why shouldn't, you know, the laws of logic fit? Well, I think they have a, 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 a different status as as arguably uh, analytic truths uh, that uh, might not be violated in in any possible world. Uh, now you could have different systems of logic. You could have a trivalent system of logic and stuff like that. But um, I I think they possibly uh, are to be placed in a different category mm. than the laws of physics that um, 
that that certainly one could imagine being different than they are and maybe they are different in some other real universes out there but even if there there were not such universes in actual physical existence where the laws of physics were different even if we're just talking about our standard big bang cosmology with the laws of physics as we know them uh, you could still have a situation with infinitely many planets right if if you just have kind of an open or flat universe with the simplest topology it just goes on as it were forever and there's a part of it that we can see the observable universe light right. has had time to get here but beyond that there is no reason to think there are not more galaxies just continuing out what, what, what in do you perpetuity make, what yeah, do you make and, of those and, that that suggest that like the multiverse which is what you're describing that the simulation hypothesis or argument <clears throat> sorry um is not falsifiable and therefore in their words i'm not saying this it's not part of the domain of science uh which is admittedly very popperian demarcation you know dialectical but but what do you make of these um you know criticisms like you can't falsify the simulation hypothesis because it could all be simulations and turtles all the way down how, how do you react to those kinds of criticisms yeah, I think there are um, certainly possible observations that would increase or decrease the probability mm -hmm. of the simulation hypothesis. Um, for example, take the limiting case where a big window pops up in front of you saying you're in a simulation, take care for more information or something like that. That would be pretty strong evidence. I don't know, though, Nick, because I, I talk about, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a practicing Jew. And uh, we make note in our Torah and the Bible, the Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, uh, just a few days, weeks after the Jews allegedly witnessed the splitting of the sea in Egypt, allowing them to traverse on their way to go to the land of Israel, that they uh, missed Moses uh, for 40 days. He was about six hours late from returning, from communicating with God and getting the Ten Commandments. And in that six-hour period, after 40 days after witnessing this miracle uh, of among all miracles, they made a golden calf. Now that, you know, I think, in other words, I think if somebody said they saw this click here button, just as people say about the Jew, oh, they were hallucinating or there was a wind and, and there was some mass delusion or it didn't happen. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that people would reject, you know, quote unquote, observational eyewitness evidence, uh, but certainly uh, that, but, but maybe even physical quote unquote evidence, because, you know, it could all be a brain in a jar. So you, well, a brain in a jar is not that different from the simulation argument. I mean, yeah. I think then you have to go into the uh, like estimating the cost of producing brains in jars versus mm. creating simulated minds in virtual realities. Where, where I argue that it would be a lot cheaper for a technologically mature civilization to run the whole thing in com in in silico, like so. So it would just be a more efficient way to generate, and then you would generate more of them. So even if there were some brains in jars. Which that might well be, uh, that that would be more people with our experience that that would be in in digital simulations, and so we should expect if if we are one of those two kinds, we would more likely be one of the kind that that has many more instances. I see. Um, but yeah, no, I mean certainly if 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 it were some some random person reporting that they had seen a big window popping up, in, like I I. I <laughs> 
I agree with you that we should be rather skeptical of that. I mean, in fact, I do get a lot of reports, people emailing that I've seen like, with all kinds of things, right? Pixels in their bathroom mirrors or whatever. And, but I think that these kinds of reports, you would be likely to see um, whether or not we are in simulation and are much more likely to be explained. Even if we were in a simulation, the most likely explanation for those kinds of reports would still be the normal psychological explanation that people have had a visual hallucination or they lie or they misremember or they misinterpret, like all of the, the standard things. We, we, there's no reason why not all of those would also apply to a simulated civilization. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you've heard um, of um, something called Eram's Law or Eroom's Law, which is uh, Moore's Law spelled backwards. Uh, and it states that the number of new drugs approved per billion dollars spent on research and development gets cut in half every nine years. So it's the opposite of Moore's law, which computing power doubles every 18 months or whatever it is. Um, I've heard it said that these computers, they, they have more teraflops or whatever, but they're not actually by the the um, the higher order metrics of, you know, H index, you know, or, or, you know, some publications or some other metric. They're not actually they're kind of saturating in terms of the through the, the net scientific output, not the throughput you know, and instantaneous capability. Would that is that not, you know, kind of an obstacle or a great filter, if you like, for the simulation hypothesis itself? So sorry, so what is saturating exactly? The the number of um either, you know, the final product like distillation, you know, final computer simulations, final nuclear web bomb simulation, the the amount of of the because there's so many more end users at, at, at heart who want to use the technology. There's also like hackers that are trying to exploit it. In other words, there are other uses rather than just the pure, you know, um, intended use of the computer as a silicon, you know, device. Um, there's more uses for it. And so it gets, it's saturating in terms of its final output, number of publications. Let's just use that a higher order statistic rather than just a lower order, but still important teraflops. Um, wouldn't that happen? In other words, as you get better and better, now you really want to simulate more and more. And so now that the, the, the tax on the computing hardware is going up also exponentially. And so you have this, you know, the ratio of two exponentials that saturates. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, if if you look at, I don't know, like the 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 number of video frames that humanity is producing, I'm I'm sure it's growing rapidly, and uh, the number of photographs taken is, I think, still increasing. Um, the amount of compute that is being devoted to artificial intelligence applications has been growing a, a lot faster than Moore's law over the past years. Um, how, how to assess the output of that. Of course, that's a kind of qualitative judgment. You, you mm -hmm. could have specific benchmarks where you can plot progress, uh, like on classifying dog and cat images, what's the error rate, and you can and, and you can see in specific domains like, like go playing capability or chess playing capability or and and and, and you do see improvements there like it, it tends to saturate if, if you're measuring at the error rate because mm -hmm. it has sort of a lower bound of zero or sometimes intrinsically in the data set there is like a minimum possible error rate so as it approaches that it has to saturate but then there are new domains to conquer and my take if you just look qualitatively at uh ai in AI achievement impressiveness in some sort of just guts level sense mm -hmm. of 
do you get the sense for wow when you're looking at what's being achieved each year? Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't have a sense of that having stagnated in, in AI in the last few years. Um, I mean, from, from, from the start of the deep learning revolution, uh, it, it seems like every year or two, we have some other major, uh, intuitively impressive achievement. Most recently, I guess the, the alpha fold folding of all these proteins and then the large language models, and then these, uh, sort of, uh, DALI style systems. Um, and, and recently some kind of reasoning systems built on top of the large language models as well, mm. um, that are now solving kind of math, math problems. Uh, there's a codex that is like a code writing assist, like all, all of these things just at the gut level, I think feels pretty impressive and with no particular sense of us having plateaued. Uh, I, I think we, we rather seem to be in the midst of some, something very rapid. Mm. unfolding of of potential there that maybe it will it will possibly stagnate at some point before maybe it gets going again but but i don't think we are in the midst of any stagnation in ai currently mm -hmm. um i wonder i know it's getting late there nick I don't, uh, do you have time for one more segment about risks in the future uh well i could take one more question uh, okay if you all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna parlay this into a, a question regarding risk, but um, also the simulation hypothesis. So we've had COVID. I see kids coming around, not me personally, thankfully, but I see kids on my campus biking around, uh, not wearing a helmet, uh, using their phone, and then wearing a mask. Uh, and I guess the question that one of my uh, audience members is asking is that given the um, uh, super intelligent concept of a singleton, which is not a simpleton, uh, but a singleton in which any entity that has complete world domination such that it can eliminate all threats to its existence, it could be a government or super intelligent AI. And once it arises, could it be it couldn't cannot be replaced because it will systematically destroy any opposition. Now I want to ask you, um, given that COVID is kind of the first ever, you know, worldwide fully documented video, audio, you know, virtual reality in any possible way, it's kind of the first of a, uh, you know, primus inter pars. Um, is this sort of pointing at perhaps a government like the CCP or something like that, that they are approaching it? Uh, and if they did, would it not behoove whoever's not, you know, in the cusp of being a singleton to destroy that, to minimize risk? Uh, so I know it's a multi-part question involving COVID, Chinese, you know, government and so forth. But if if you felt there was a chance for uh, for folks to or for, you know, government like CCP to come up with this, uh, one of my listeners, JT Alexandria, is asking what would be, or sorry, Joseph Billing, uh, is asking, should we kill the singleton, be, you know, while it's still a newborn? Well, the, the concept of singleton is, 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 is a somewhat more abstract one. So it's a world order in which at the highest level of organization, there is a single decision-making entity such that global coordination problems are solved. Um, so that can't be sort of two singletons on earth, right? By definition, it's, yeah. it's a kind of a global world order. Um, and so it's to some extent a matter of degree. We have various weaker forms of uh, international collaboration, um, but they are far from perfect. So we still have uh, global coordination problems that we haven't solved that results in the fact that we have militaries that are preparing to kill the people in the other militaries that we have, 
you know, global warming, that we have overfishing, that we have a whole bunch of problems that arise fundamentally from our ability to get along with one another. Mm. Um, within nations, we have, as it were, the analog of singletons, but within a limited jurisdiction. So yeah, so, so the Communist Party in China would be a singleton in China, the, the US government would be kind of a singleton in the US. And it's almost the definition of a state that it's an entity that has a monopoly of violence within its territory, you know, give or take, but that's approximately the case. But we don't have any analogous thing at the global level. Mm. The, the different organizations we have are very weak, like the UN is weak, the International Trade Organization. There are these kind of weak overlapping World Economic Forum. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're very weak. There, there may be more than zero, but they are less powerful over the globe than the United States government is over the United States or the Communist Party is over China. Um, and so um, now it's an interesting question whether we, if, if, to the extent that we have some, some choice in the matter, should favor or disfavor the emergence of a singleton, like that is some kind of state-like, and it doesn't need to be a state-like entity. You said it could be a super intelligence. It could also be in theory, other kinds of things like a kind of moral code, universal moral code that was self-enforcing. Uh, so it's an abstract concept that could be instantiated in many different ways. Should we be in favor or opposed to this? Um, I think in theory, a singleton could be very bad or very uh, harmful. Uh, like the concept itself doesn't determine that. Um, I think it's quite likely that there will eventually be a singleton by no means certain. Um, and on the margin, should we favor it or disfavor it? Uh, very hard to say. I mean, I kind of tend to think that a lot of the biggest existential risks uh, will arise from the fundamental fracturing of humanity, that the, the, the possibility of conflict or of one part of humanity doing something that is against the interest of another part, new weapon systems, new arms races, new kinds of risk-taking that you do in competition with other superpowers. If, if that's the, the biggest source of existential risk, then it's possible that, yeah, having something that reduces that would be net positive, even though certainly it is the case that the singleton itself would be another big source of existential risk. Like if it turns bad, then, you know, right. it's all the eggs in one basket. Uh, so it's a question of weighing these two different kinds of risk. But I think the risks from conflict looks plausibly dominant of the risk of uh, oppression. But I mean, uh, that's a hard judgment call. And, and last question, if you'll indulge me for one second. Um, Elon Musk has talked a lot about the great filter, super AI intelligence and so forth, but he's also talked a lot about um, uh, underpopulation and depopulation. Uh, what's your stance there? Should should a young person have children right now in your opinion? I don't know, even know if you have children, but but should it should somebody ethically uh, have children? I, I I think seems seems fine. I mean, I think there are if if to the extent that you want to do the morally optimal thing, there are many things you could do besides having children. But I certainly don't think there is any moral reason to refrain from it. Mm -hmm. I, I worry less about population decline because I'm thinking probably before that has it's a kind of slow and gradual thing uh, that the world will be dramatically transformed before that has had a time to play itself out. And in the longer run, I think that would be powerful uh, evolutionary selection for higher fertility. 
um, that that would eventually counteract these cultural trends, most likely. We we already see selection, say, in favor of um, reduced female education and stuff, have higher fertility, fundamentalist, many fundamentalist communities have higher fertility. And, and there will be all kinds of other partially inheritable traits that will impact fertility and, and those will be on, on the positive selection. Uh, so over longer time frames, like if we're talking hundreds of years and stuff, then eventually I think some group will emerge that either for biological reasons or more likely for cultural reasons, just have managed to find some way to retain high fertility, even in a sort of advanced technological context. Interesting. Would so humanity does have a future in addition to your institute, which you direct as founder. Um, Nick, I want to thank you so much. Your work is always so inspiring. It makes me think. It makes me uh, turn different ideas in my head. My audience loves your, your mind, and we hope uh, to have you back someday. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap. That was tremendous. That was really, as I said, a bucket list conversation. I hope I don't kick the bucket for quite some time. Maybe we'll get them back. Maybe we won't. Uh, at any rate, I want to thank you for submitting questions. Remind you, you can submit questions to me via my mailing list, briankating.com slash list, where you might win a little piece of, uh, of proto-solar system planetary debris, a meteorite, if you're among the 100 lucky winners on the next uh, run, printing, mailing of meteorites that will go out soon. Otherwise, I want you to subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel where you can see the interview and some background footage. We do different things on the audio podcast versus the video podcast. Give you two bites at the at the impossible apple so that you can enjoy whatever your listening mode. But if since you are listening to this, as I know, because this is on my podcast only format, I want to ask you to do a favor last done for me by a very loyal listener who goes by the name of jbro22 in the US of A who wrote headline, I love this show. And he went on to say, as an amateur, this show feeds my need for more knowledge and context, and it's giving me better perspective and information than other sources. It's challenging, yet accessible. The only problem is that, as a newer subscriber, my reading list is growing faster as I catch up to all the content. Well, thank you, Jaybro. Uh, that means the multiverse to me. I hope you will all out there do the same favor as Jaybro. You can do that now on Audible, where you get Audible podcasts, so do that there, as well as on Apple Podcasts. And reviewers and publicists and all sorts of folks who look at those reviews and the number count, which is about 400. 430, 440 by now um, in the USA and a 570 worldwide ratings. And they look, you know, should we have this author like Nick Bostrom? It took two years to get him on the show. Uh, and they look at subscriber count, review counts, things like that. So if you want to hear phenomenal conversations like that, please do leave a quick rating and a review anywhere you get your podcast and subscribe to my channel and my mailing list so we can help grow this multiverse of minds throughout the known limits of the human mind. I want to thank you for going into the impossible. Stay tuned. Remember, you can always leave a comment. We're going to have an AMA episode not too long from now. There's a little recording icon on my website, briankeating.com slash podcast. You can also sign up there for my mailing list. So I do hope you'll do that and indulge me these delightful uh, replies. I love hearing from you. Uh, looking forward to new episodes, including Dr. Sean Carroll with his wonderful new book, The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, and many, many more. But for now, stay tuned to this space and uh, enjoy the rest of your time and have a magical, magical week. Thanks, everyone.